balance sheets matter, central banks are balance sheets. Yes, because they are back for the state, they can do certain things for a certain period of time. But at the end of the day, the markets triumph against politics and, uh, and the market will liquidate the Fed. And what, the way that will look like is again, the market forcing the balance sheet to balance. Welcome to the Gold Exchange Podcast, where we untangle market and policy complexity using timeless economic principles. For show notes and archives, go to goldexchangepodcast.com. Now, on to today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Gold Exchange Podcast. My name is Dixon Buchanan, and I'll be hosting today's episode alongside the founder and CEO of Monetary Metals, Keith Wiener. Today, we're delighted to have on our show, Dan Oliver, Jr., Dan is the founder and managing member of Mermican Capital, an investment firm specializing in micro-capitalized gold and silver mining companies. He's also the president of the Committee for Monetary Research and Education, a storied nonprofit founded in 1970, note that date, to promote greater public understanding of the nature of monetary institutions and the central role that a healthy monetary system plays in the well-being and indeed the very survival of a free society. Here, here. I love that line, by the way. It's a great line. I wish I could Last... help it, but the guys did back in the 70s, <laughs> so nothing must have changed. Well, it's, it's, it's as true today as it was then. Um, last but not least, Dan is working on a book that explores the nature and history of credit bubbles going all the way back to ancient Greece and beyond. And we definitely want to hear an update on that project Dan, but first, let me say, uh, we're very glad to have you. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Always delighted to talk to the two of you. I know you're both pretty good scholars yourself, so uh, it's nice always have good conversations. Great. Thank you. All right. So as I was preparing for this episode, I was, I was going back through your body of work, Dan, in my mind. And the, the thing that really sticks out to me is you have this ability to bring to life the lessons that we can glean from monetary and financial history, specifically as it pertains to the historical blunders, you know, the, the, the errors, you know, the things that went wrong, uh, the unsound decisions that were made, and of course the consequences of those decisions. And then taking those lessons and mapping them to our present day monetary madness, what we see all around us. Uh, I'm sure everyone's familiar with the phrase History never repeats, but it rhymes. And I feel like what you do so well is you identify what rhymes and then bring that to bear on our present monetary and political environment. Uh, we definitely want to get into that on the show today. But first, I just want to tell our audience where they connect, where they can connect with you and your work. So you write primarily on your website, which is mermican.com. And on the homepage of Mermican.com, there's a little tab, a little link that says Mermican Research, and that's where you can connect with Dan and his writings. And you can also find him on Twitter, uh, at Mermican, and we'll provide a, a link to both of those in our show notes. So, Dan, to kick us off, why don't you give our audience just a little bit about your background and then also specifically when and how did you become interested in these topics of money, credit, and, and financial history. Yeah, I'll, I'll do that. But before I do that, I, I want to go back to something you said in the introduction about uh, stories and, and you know the ability to use stories in the past, build at the future. And, and I don't want to lose the thread because it's so important to understand that through the 1890s, uh, economics was a humanity. It was in the humanities department, you know, the English department, the literature department, philosophy department. It wasn't a science. And, and it was a story. It was a story of man and scarcity and his relationship with each other, with banking and, and money. It's all about you know, social organization. And so they looked back at what had happened in the Middle Ages, what had happened in, in Rome, what had happened in Greece, and took real lessons out of those experiences. And so um, you know, my primary education, which I can get to later how I got into it originally, but my education was written, uh, reading books written most in the 1890s. That was a period when the gold standard and the silver standard were at odds with each other. William Jennings Jenny Bryant wanted to have an inflationary silver standard. And there was a broad national conversation about that uh, and lots and lots of books written that basically brought all of monetary history up to date, up to date being 1890. Uh, after World War I, 
the economics profession was hijacked by uh, Keynes and Fisher, I mean Fisher, and they tried to turn it into a science. So looking at numbers and math, and now of course, if you take economics today, they don't worry about what happened in ancient Rome. They say, well, it was agriculture, it wasn't, you know, an industrial society, totally different, nothing to do with this at all. Uh, and, and, you know, in my view, that's entirely wrong. It's why that the economics profession has become so alienated from people. And in fact, as, as I'm sure you know, the Fed has written papers saying that ordinary people should not comment on economics, that you have no value to add to the economic conversation unless you have taken preparatory work to get your PhD. It's so complicated. These models are so difficult. You, you can't know what you're talking about. And, and I'll tell you my, my favorite story to disprove that idea. And, and that is, uh, uh, I was going back to the story from Tacitus, the first century Roman historian who wrote about the panic of AD 33 in Rome. And he wrote about a stringency of the money market uh, and, and the emperor Tiberius responded to this by taking 100 million sestares out of the imperial treasury, lending it to the banks at zero interest uh, against double the value of real estate collateral, which, of course, is precisely what uh, Henry Paulson uh, and, and Bernanke did in, in 2008. And that one story, I think, explodes the idea that somehow modernity is different in kind than, than antiquity. And, and once you explore that myth, you can look back at these stories and, and see what happened and, and learn from it. And in fact, in that particular case, I also like to point out that the Roman denarius, the, the coin of the realm, had lost around 13% of its silver content over the previous 300 years. If you look at a chart of silver content, 83.3 is precisely where the uh, logarithmic decline in the silver content began. It's a curve that goes to zero by the time uh, Diocletian shows up. It winds up being a tin coin with silver coating. And, and again, this is very instructive for us because what happened after 2008? Well, yes, they saved the system, but look at the monetary base, what's happening to it, which is sort of a, a, the flip side of what a coin would look like in terms of the silver content. And, and so again, looking at these, at these episodes, and your quote, which is perhaps overused, that silver doesn't repeat it rhymes. What I like is, uh, is um, when the union was debating the National Banking Acts in 1864 uh, uh, during the Civil War, there was someone who rose up against them. And his comment was, we are neither wiser nor better than our fathers. And I like that a lot, because the point, again, is that you know, yes, technical knowledge gets better. You know, we have airplanes now, computers now. They didn't have that back then. That that's all true. But philosophical knowledge has, has not improved. Uh, I, I would put Aristotle up against any modern philosopher. And 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 again, once you put economics back in that box of a humanity, you know, all of a sudden the world opens up in terms of different cultures, different times, different areas that you can draw stories out of. And and what you see, like the example I gave you over thousands of years, thousands, not hundreds, uh, you see the same quotations in, in, in slightly different form, but basically saying the same thing over and over and, and over again. And, and that's, that's, as you say, what I try to bring the life back into economics so people can understand the context they're in and, and apply ancient wisdom, which was very expensively earned. <laughs> Most of the uh, you know, revelations in economics happen after a big crash, a big crisis, because that, that's when things crystallize and you realize what happened. And, and people don't read it, unfortunately. So, so uh, that, that's a long comment on, on, your, on your introduction. But in terms of my own personal journey, it plays into that because um, really until 2008, I had no interest in, in monetary theory or, or anything of that nature. I mean, I was interested in markets and business and sort of, you know, of uh, both my parents in the, were in the Reagan administration. Um, so I, was in the, I grew up in DC and around politics and that kind of thing. Um, but in terms of the money, uh, no, no interest, right? Until again, in my own life, I was like, wow, you know, I was doing Kamai's down in 2008, the whole world fell apart. And, and, uh, and I wanted to find out what was this all about? And, and you know, I, I didn't, Keynes didn't take me anywhere particularly interesting. But I sat down and started reading books written in the, in the 1930s about their experience, most by journalists, not economists, who were describing what had happened. I realized in those books that I was living through in 2008 was exactly the same. And those books, again, refer back to the 19th century events I'd never heard of. But then I, I began to research and I discovered Ludwig von Mises, who I'd never heard of before. Um, I'd been I went to all the top schools. And I'd never heard his name mentioned. I took Keynes in economics three times in, in university and law school and business school. Never heard of Ludwig von Mises. And, and so yeah, I became an autodidact on, on, on these issues. 
But I, I think of another story which, which you might enjoy hearing. What, what prepped me for that, which made me receptive to learn that knowledge was a previous experience I had. My, my first year in law school, I, I was uh, working for a professor of the summer on an on a antitrust case, uh, which was sort of a bit my dad was head of the FTC under Reagan. So it's antitrust was sort of the thing. And, and it was uh, to do with uh, the pattern industry, which took me about a week to figure out what that was. And what it was was that before 1900, people had made their own clothes. They would go to the store and buy them. And I, this was sort of a revelation to me. But you would buy the fabric and you get the pattern and you would sort of cut around the fabric the way kids do today. And then you sell them together. And, and these, pa these uh, patterns were sold in catalogs. Uh, and that had been going on for a bit of time. But then in the 19 teens, when the Fed first got going, funding World War I and printing lots of money, these catalog companies went crazy. And I came across articles written in 1919 saying things like uh, Bob's hardware store thought he was too small to have a catalog, but we told him he could have one, two, and things like in 10 years, there'll be no more retail stores because it'll all be catalogs. And this was 1919. I, I was reading this, by the way, in, in 1999, right, when, when the exact same article was being written about the internet. And, and, uh, and what happened, in, in, of course, next was that uh, the Fed stopped printing the money when the war ended, the market crashed, most of the catalogs went into business, um, but the ones that survived, like Sears, for example, which only survived because the founders put $3 million back into the company to keep it going, uh, did very well. And in fact, if you had bought the catalog, the survivors at the bottom of the market, you did much better than you did speculating in the teens because they got so low, they basically got to almost zero and then they, and they recovered from there. And so I developed a thesis that, um, that the same thing would happen to the internet, that the internet would go through a crash and then, then you'd wanna buy the survivors at the bottom. And so the thing to do is to raise a, a fund, have it in treasury bonds, wait for the crash, buy the internet companies at the bottom. Now I was a, a first year law student. Uh, and then of course I got shuffled to the big law firm thing. I, I didn't do that. And, and the thesis worked out precisely. And so yeah. in 2008, it wasn't just an abstract intellectual uh, uh, a journey. I, I was trying to see to myself as commodities collapsed, were there parallels in history the way I had found in 1919? Now, again, at the time, I knew nothing about the Fed or, or its influence. I didn't get any of that. I just got that there was a pattern here. Could I figure out what the pattern was? And, and of course, once I started digging seriously, I, I discovered Austrian economics and I discovered that, no, pattern, I mean, my goodness, this pattern's been going on for thousands of years and commodities, really the, the, the big daddy of, of cycles, not, not you know, internet stocks are, and Kellogg stock stocks are fun too, but, but really the commodity cycle and, 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 the, and the currency cycle. And then the cycle of civilizations is, is something that you can actually think about in, in terms of acting to preserve and, and enhance your wealth. And so that, that was, a long description of the intellectual journey that that led me from just you know your average sort of lawyer in New York and who went to business school looking through and do and realizing oh my goodness you know that there's a story here that is going to define uh, really civilization for the next you know little, little while now I might get my timing off I thought 2008 <laughs> this was sort of the end and now it's 14 years later but but the the themes are the same and all that's happened in my view is that the the amplitude of our cycle is just larger than it ever has been in history. And that is a very dangerous thing, very scary thing, um, but it cannot go on forever. And we can talk about, you know, with Keith, what, why that is, but, but we will reach an end point at some point and it's gonna be very, very ugly. And that's why I think what we're talking. The one thing that um, comes to my mind as you're describing all that is uh, somebody once said to me that um, tulip mania in Holland was not because of central banks, that it's, you know, just intrinsic to um, human nature to get stupid and irrational. And I said, you are aware that, um, and I haven't studied exact connections, but I wonder if you have. I said to him, you are aware that the Bank of Amsterdam, the first, what we would call of the modern era of central banks was founded, what, a dozen years before tulip mania. That's exactly he, right. He just kind of went silent and that was the end of that. <laughs> That's exactly um, right. That's exactly right. Yeah, uh, uh, I, I haven't studied the exact mechanism of uh, you know credit expansion and credit transmission. It's the tulip market from the Bank of Amsterdam, but I'm sure that'd make a fascinating. I don't know if you've studied it, but it sounds like it'd make a fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean briefly, it, it 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 wasn't a true credit cycle in that I don't know if you were aware of this, but most of the speculation were future contracts, which were then canceled. Very, very few were actually acted upon, so so it wasn't a broad based. Uh, 
affectation of the economy at large in terms of investment. It happens so quickly in, in, in a specialized futures market. But, but in short, the Bank of Amsterdam was a tremendous innovation, which I'm sure you're aware of, and that is um, gold coins, and we'll talk about this, I mean, gold is the, is the ultimate monetary medium but then it has to take a form and the a coin is better than an ingot. An ingot, you, you got you to weigh, you know what it is. A coin has a weight stamped on it and you can more or less trust what that weight is under certain conditions, but there are lots of conditions where you can't trust that. And, and one condition was in the uh, uh, 60th century Holland, Holland, there were over 900 or 9,000, I can't remember which one, nine something, <laughs> zero, 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 different kinds of gold coins circulating the market. That hadn't been the case when Rome was dominant the Roman coinage defined coinage. And if you didn't have Roman coins, no one wanted to deal with you. And then it was Byzantine coinage. And, and again, it demonstrates the power of monetary uh, sobriety that, that Byzantium, which is far away from Europe, uh, of a different religion, they were Orthodox instead of Catholic, with no political or religious authority. And yet Europe transacted on the basis of Byzantine coinage because for 900 years, it was very, very solid. When Byzantium collapsed in, in the, in the uh, early uh, Middle Ages, then every little prince in Europe started printing up, mending up their own coins because there was no standard particularly. And so when you showed up a market with a gold coin in Holland in that time period, it wasn't just you had different coins with different faces and different weights, but each one had been clipped or chipped. You, you put them in bags, you shake them around, little coin bits fall off. So merchants would weigh not just the merchandise they were selling you, but also the coins with which you were paying for that merchandise. And what, what the Bank of Amsterdam did, which was, again, a, a market-driven, uh, uh, innovation was they said, look, we'll take your coins, we'll weigh them and assay them, and we'll give you paper claims to them. And the market much preferred the, the paper claims because they were entirely uniform. You knew exactly how much gold you were getting, and you could go to the bank anytime and get, get it out. And, and, and so gold and silver uh, fluttered from all over Europe into the Bank of Amsterdam because it was so much better way to transact. And so that's why you wind up with, with too much, quote unquote, money uh, in, in Holland. And of course, you only do that in a country that the people trust the government's not going to come steal the money, right? So that kind of limited France and England at the time. So you had to go somewhere, a commercial nation that, that would do that. And of course, you know, what, what eventually wound up happening at the Bank of Amsterdam, like every other bank, is that it wasn't that the, the paper was more valuable than gold, because the bank charged a fee to do this. So it did trade a premium, but, but you lost a premium because you had to pay to get the paper to the bank to, when, when you got it. Um, it, was, it was more liquid. The people preferred that. And so no one ever particularly took their metal out of the bank. And so it just sat there. Because why, why would you take your very liquid paper and convert it, which you've already paid a fee to get, and convert it back into less liquid bullion, which no one really wants anyway because it's so... Uh, it, it's so ununiform, I guess, uh, except in a panic situation. And, and so over time, the Bank of Amsterdam became corrupted in that instead of just swapping uh, notes for gold and then later commercial bills, which maybe we can talk about later, Keith, um, they started financing the city. They started financing the East Indian Company, they started financing these companies. And, and that was a very different thing to issue paper in return for future promises versus paper in terms of present value. And, and what's interesting too, and this is not something, something you had to dig around for, but over the next couple hundred years, the Bank of Amsterdam maintained the value of its notes because it actively traded them in the market. When their notes fell below par, they would go out and buy, repurchase their notes and support it that way. So even though they, they actually at, point, at some point stopped being convertible, but they maintained their value because the bank May, you know, would trade in the market and, and maintain it. If they got too expensive, they would sell. They would sell more notes, which is more or less what how central banks operate today. And what happened was, uh, I think it was in the mid 18th century, early 18th century, they effectively lent out so much money and they supported their, their currency to such an extent they ran out of gold. <laughs> so one day the currency just crashed and there was no more assets to support it. And that was the end of the Bank of Amsterdam. So it, 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 the example is usually given in, in hard money circles as this paragon of virtue, which it was at its founding. But rarely have I heard the story of its full development where it winds up being like every other bank in history, or actually a central bank, where it winds up uh, over-issuing notes, trying to maintain their value through market operations, and then failing that because they were so responsible with the money issuing process because of politics. So was that, when you say over-issue notes, I think most people in the gold community assume that there's just a simple fraud that you have, um, you know, 10 gold coins and you issue 100, you know, notes, or was this a, 
more of an issue of either the soundness of the credit that they ex extended or the duration mismatch of the credit they extended. In other words, they they did, let's say, 10-year loans uh, financed by, you know, uh, demand deposit notes that could be redeemed at the whim of the note holder at any time. And did they get crushed between, uh, you know, short-term liabilities being redeemed and long-term assets that they couldn't, uh, you know, make good on? Yeah, so it's, it's at some point, I can't remember when along the, the way, maybe 100 years after founding, they actually eliminated the right to, to withdraw your gold. So the gold is backing in the bank, but you couldn't actually get at the bank, which is sort of what the Fed did in 1933, right? They said you, you can't redeem your dollars anymore for gold, but all the gold was still sitting on the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. And not only that, when they devalued the dollar, it meant the dollar was over collateralized by gold. So a lot of hard money guys in, in the mid-30s saying the dollar was going to crash because you couldn't convert it anymore, redeem it anymore. What they didn't see was that a bank has a balance sheet. And as long as the assets are balancing the liabilities, it's not so important so much if you can redeem them, as long as the bank is ready, willing, and able to go in the market and intervene. Uh, and uh, unlike, for example, in the 1860s in the Civil War, when they tried the same thing, right? They, they eliminated the greenback, which was not convertible to gold, and the greenback collapsed. Why? Because the federal government had no resources with which to back it or to which to intervene in the market to support it. So two very different things. Um, and But to answer your question, Keith, my understanding is, and, and I've read oracles that I'm not a steward expert on it, but my understanding is that um, the, but the problem they ran into was that, like every other problem, um, that they were pressured politically to lend to the to the state, to, to the city, which they didn't and and That's to companies, and and so you know, as you know, if, if you're issuing notes against uh, um, bullion or commercial bills, you don't set a credit cycle in motion because you're you're exchanging present value for present value. But when you exchange present value, present notes for a future value, that's when you get the credit cycle going, right? And that's when you get prices rising over speculation, right? And all those things. It doesn't It's not. It wasn't so much that people were running to the bank to withdraw their money it was no one wanted it anymore and and again it's it's i'm glad you brought it up because it 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 goes to exactly the end game of what we're going to experience in, in our time at some point which is that people assume that the fed is this mystical thing you can't have a run of the fed now you could there were runs on central banks and the theory is you could go to the bank and say here's my money i want my gold not just the fed but all the european central banks were convertible and, and the way the great depression got touched off wasn't so much the crash of 29 the stock crash it was the bond market crash, and that was precipitated by the Austrian bank guaranteeing credit install, which was hopelessly insolvent. The, the bank failed. People ran to the Austrian central bank with their currency, said, give me my gold. Right? They, they tried to meet the demands for certain time. They ran out of gold. They closed the window. Then Germany was next. Well, Austria can't pay. Germany probably can't either. So, so, so there's a, a little run on the central banks in Germany and in England. And that can't happen today, obviously. You can't go to the Fed. And say, here's my $20, give me an ounce of gold or my $2,000 or whatever the number is. But what you can do is you can go to the coin store and, and say that and say, here's, here's my $2,000, give me an ounce of gold. You can't redeem it, but you can convert it still, right? And, and that's effectively what happened to the Bank of Amsterdam. You couldn't redeem it, but you could convert it to something else. And, and the way I view the 70s, which I've never seen anyone else write on this, maybe, maybe you have an opinion, Keith, but, but it is the, the, the decade started with gold at $35 an ounce, which was a fixed price, right? Now, the US had lost two thirds of the gold reserve defending that price. It wasn't a market price, it was a fixed price. And at that level, the gold the Federal Reserve's balance sheet backed its liabilities by about 12%. By 1980, the Fed had printed so much money and gold went up so much that at 650 an ounce, the gold on the Fed's balance sheet exactly matched its liabilities. In other words, the dollar had become at 650 an ounce a gold back instrument. It, it was just a, a gold. It was entirely backed by gold. And in fact, gold ran to 875, but not for a very long time. 850 was kind of the top, except for that speculative pop at the end. And so the market effectively had a run on the Federal Reserve. And, and, and that's what it looks like. You run to the coin store and you sell your paper dollars until gold reaches a price that backs, that balances the balance sheet again. And, and again, I think when the Fed finally loses the control, which it will at some point, the way the market stages are run on the Fed is it will price gold at a price to make the Fed's balance sheet balance. And the day that price is around $14,000 an ounce, which I know sounds crazy, but that's just, that's just simply math. And, and I think it'd be very bad assumption to assume that the Fed isn't going to print more money 
between now and its final collapse. So yeah, that's so that's, that's the problem on. is the desperate need for an exponential growth in uh, the quantity of what people call money. And of course, the debt on the other side is growing exponentially. That's right. And so, yeah, sure. Okay. So it's 14,000, but then, you know, the following year, it's 28,000. And the following year is <laughs> six times two is 112, uh, you, you know, thousand. And when it starts to get away, or this is my permanent gold backwardation thesis, that there's a point at which the people with the gold, because it isn't a redemption, as you point out, it's, and, and I would quibble with the word conversion, I would say it's simply an exchange, that you're going to somebody who has gold at a higher price than he paid for it, so he's getting a profit, or so he thinks. Um, but when the people with the gold begin to perceive the nature of this exponential, uh, um, you know, destructive trend, there's a point at which the gold owners say, I'm not, uh, I'm not doing this anymore. They're not willing to sell their gold anymore. And it's not a function of price either. And then uh, what you'll see is this incredible backwardation developing gold along with exponentially rising price. And then there'll be a point at which gold goes, you know, from the dollar perspective, uh, people will see it as gold going no offer. Now my quibble with that, and um, was it um, Grant Williams gave a talk at a conference and, and that was kind of the thesis that gold will go no offer at the end of this process. I said, you know, it's kind of odd that in everything else, in times of crisis, things, something goes no bid. Why is gold no offer? And in this case, it's because we're looking at it through the dollar lens. And if you invert that and say, actually, the gold is the money, the dollar is a credit instrument, no different than the credit of the Bank of Amsterdam or, or any, other, any other credit, it's the dollar going no bid. That's right. Not, not gold going no offer. That gold is the money, it's bidding on things. And when it decides to stop bidding, which is hard to predict and a very nonlinear, uh, I've heard the term stick slip dynamics, for example, you know, you're dropping little grains of sand onto the top of a conical pile. It sticks, it sticks, with each one is sticking. And then there's one almost at random. I mean, it's impossible to even compute this with the best supercomputers one more grain and the whole pile goes right right i think that's right i think that's exactly right how do you how do you predict that when you can't and um you know the two things you can say are one um if you're early you know what i, I said this on an interview not too long ago being early is indistinguishable from being wrong however in, in a run on the bank it's far better to be a year early than an hour late because <laughs> no, you get nothing yeah, i mean I, I agree with that and i think i think you don't need to be so binary right i mean if you see going going down you should accumulate more and if it goes up especially in relation to other assets i mean it's a very complicated thing to think about because you have the gold going up and down in dollar terms you also have gold going up and down in terms of other assets and that can give you a clue as to where gold is in in the cycle i agree that gold is going to go a lot higher nominally but well, will not be eight dollars, eighty dollars a barrel when when gold's at twenty thousand dollars an ounce. I mean, it's, so it, it, the the economy will still function, as you say. It's a dollar going no bid, not not gold going no offer. But I I think it's important to note, understand when, what you're alluding to is this cycle is what we usually call hyperinflation, and hyperinflation can seem like an event because as as your grain of sand example. I think is a very apt one that, that the avalanche, you don't know which like of snow starts the avalanche, it happens very suddenly. But it's also a process. But right. by that I mean, if, uh, if, if, for example, the currency, the dollar would have collapsed tomorrow, right? And the Fed would say, like, we're not experiment balance sheet. Well, gold wouldn't stabilize at 14,000. And I say that because, because the assets in the Fed's balance sheet aren't worth zero. I mean, we're, I think the long-term bonds are worth a lot less than the market thinks they are, but I wouldn't say they're worth nothing. And the same thing with the mortgage-backed securities. I think they're overvalued, but the number is zero. And so gold doesn't need to go to a backing of 100%, which is what it did in 1980. And that was overdone, obviously, because gold went into 20-year fair market after that. And the Treasury bonds back in 1980 were yielding, what, 13% in the 30-year of a Congress that was solvent. I mean, the total debt position, the U.S. is 30% of GDP at 33%. So it was, it was nothing compared to today. Um, but so gold... 
doesn't need to go 100%. It needs to go to a number that said to make the balance sheet balance. The other assets have some value. So that's not the question. The question is what happens when that first event happens, when the first collapse happens? If, if, if as we know, it will probably happen, the government doesn't want to tighten its belt, right? What should happen is the government says, like, we're, back, we're broke, sorry. Uh, we got to slash the military, we slash all the social spending, we got to slash all that stuff and let the market reemerge as, as the overriding force to organize society, right? Well, that would burn itself out pretty fast. Uh, and, we, and we would start over again pretty quickly. And there are lots of examples of this. Um, Erhard's Germany in, in the 19, uh, uh, late 40s, early 50s, is a good example of this when, when John Kennedy Galbraith was saying, we need more price controls when Germany was a total mess. You probably know this, that the Nazis came in, they had a full employment uh, policy, that was what they wanted to do politically. And the only way to do that, of course, was to print lots of money and create lots of work for people that the market didn't have. And so before long, they had price controls and everything, because once you start organizing economies, Hayek taught, you, you, you either had to abandon your efforts or expand them. And so they expand, expand, expand. Then the Nazis lose the war and the, and the U.S. Keynesians show up and they keep the, the controls in place. I mean, it made them worse. It was unbelievable. Uh, so Germany got worse and worse and worse. And finally, it was uh, Erhard, who later became chancellor who in the middle of a crisis enabled him to get rid of all the price controls overnight completely. And that's what began the German economic miracle at that point, because they got rid of all those controls. So that is a, in the logical space of outcomes. So the question is, is that likely in the US at this point? And the answer of course is no, right? What will happen when the Congress loses purchasing power because the dollar is falling in value is they'll tell the Fed buy more of our bonds. And that's why I'd say it's a self-reinforcing cycle because when the Fed is being forced to finance the government, especially once we get into a real inflationary cycle, they'll be buying bonds that nobody else wants, a price that nobody else believes in. And, and that means that they'll have to either buy all the bonds in circulation because they're all wound up at the Fed's doorstep, right? If, they're, if the Fed's paying above market for them uh, or, or, or let the whole thing collapse and the Congress simply won't let them do that. So th that's where you get that cycle going where the federal, the central bank, and this is what happened, of course, in the 20s in Europe, the central bank is being forced to monetize the government debt, which spirals up very, very fast because the purchasing power is falling so fast that to keep the same level of spending, and you, you got the, the, monetary, the monetary basis to go up an exponential basis. So I think we're a long way from that, but I do think that's the end game uh, on, on the track we're on. Now, I don't think that's the only outcome here. And the other one is, that um, the dry run was Cyprus, right, in 2013, which is that when you when you when we get this imbalance in the bank system and the government doesn't have any money uh, and, and they're sort of printing it, if they bail everybody in in terms of their deposits and and uh, when I was living in Argentina, for the safety of pensioners, they made them take their private IRA accounts and, and put them into government bonds because that would be much more much more safe, of course. Well, I was, I was just rating the private. So there are things they can do like that to keep, keep the show going for a while, and, and no doubt they will. That's my answer when people talk about, is the government going to confiscate gold again? I say, you know, 1933, gold confiscation was about getting controlled monetary policy. Today, gold has nothing to do with the monetary system. They don't care. And if they just simply want to grab the loot, as much loot as they can grab, then the obvious thing to do would be the IRAs and the 401ks. And the easy way to do that, right, is, and there wouldn't even be a constitutional issue. Congress have, has, has given us tax deferred status. That's so right. all they have to do is pass a new uh, tweak to the, uh, amend the regulation that says, in order to retain your tax deferred status, you know, you have to have whatever 50% of your retirement account has to be in these spiffy new government retirement bonds that we're gonna issue, you know, for your protection and safety and convenience. And these and these new bonds are going to have a five percent coupon or something like that. That's going to sound really good, and I, I don't think even most people would even object. Let alone you know anyways, and they'll get half the value or whatever it is for everybody's IRAs or four hundred one k's, which would be, you know, what mid to high single digit trillions of dollars. Whereas if they try to confiscate gold, I think they'd be lucky to get tens of billions of dollars of it uh, at this point. Um, yeah, I agree. And actually, you probably know this, Keith, but but um, Roosevelt made possession of gold pun uh, punishable by ten years in prison and a, and a what was it, ten thousand dollar fine, which today would be more like you know, half a million dollar fine. I think no one was prosecuted under that law. It was it was meant to suppress 
people's desire to have gold, but uh, no, no one has ever actually sent to jail, my understanding is. Um, and, and, and they got very little of the gold came in. Now they did manage to take gold out of the system. Right. So they, they could they could orient they wanted to, but minute the race the way they wanted to and have the whole Bretton Woods thing work the way they wanted to. But um, but to your point, actually, if you research why gold was re-legalized in the 70s, it actually had to do with the fact that it was so incongruous the Keynes used to say that gold was a barbaric relic. And yet, why is it illegal to hold it? <laughs> it made absolutely no sense. And and so there were some right-wing people pushing for it to be to legalize it. And it, it was it was very difficult to argue against it because to do so would therefore undermine the whole idea that we don't need gold in the monetary system. Well, but they didn't have any reason to care anymore. I mean, it was out of the monetary That's system. It. So they're like, okay, we don't care. Um, as I understand it, uh, Jim Blanchard, who was a, um, I don't, I think he was a paraplegic. He had his arms, but not his legs. Um, showed up in Washington D.C. in front of uh, the Capitol, and he's holding up a bar of gold, and he says, "This is a felony for for me to possess." And he calls a press conference or something like that. Has like a, you know, the Goodyear blimp flying overhead, legalized gold again, and he's holding up this, you know, this bar of gold, and he's like. I dare you, Sony's not even showing up on my camera. I dare you arrest me for possessing this bar of gold, which of course they, they didn't dare do. Yeah. You know, here I am, I'm, I'm a cripple, you know, I dare you. And um, everyone's kind of like, yeah, why is this? So they re-legalized it and then they kind of turned it into, a, you know, they introduced it as a chip in the casino, right? No, we'll have futures on this thing and we'll treat it like uh, pork bellies and, and orange juice. And yeah, uh, you know, people can bet on it. The Fed sent a letter to the bank saying that um, that they were not to advertise gold, especially not to undermine confidence in the bank system in terms of gold. And the gold was a speculative asset that uh, that they should not encourage their their customers to buy. And who was it? The head of the Treasury Department was a Simon at that point who who threatened the market and said, "Look, we have so much gold. If you bid it up, we'll just we'll just smash you down," um, which which they did a few times. Uh, but of course, as you know, the the more they spent their gold essentially selling it to control the price the less gold they had and the more the market said okay well we're less scared of you now because we got less gold to, to sell on us so it it it, it back yes a central bank saying that we're going to fight the market the central bank has a finite resource and the market is essentially an unlimited um you know think of it as like a zombie horde you know pushing against the gates but there's an unlimited number of them and um you know, the central bank is always going to lose in the end. Um, that's right. And again, that's a core lesson of history is that economics trumps politics every time. Now, it takes it can take a while, certainly. Uh, the Soviet Union is a good example, but but it does. You simply cannot. Uh, or, or take a look at the Swiss National Bank. Right? So everybody understands when you have the, the central bank of the banana republic saying we're going to support the peso one to one against the dollar. And the market is saying we don't believe you anymore. We don't trust you anymore. They only have, so the way they have to support that is people are dumping pesos to buy dollars. And the only way the central bank has to fight that is by buying the pesos and selling dollars. But they only have a finite number of dollars. It's obvious the game is up long before. I mean, it's like in chess, you know, you can put your king down and say, I see the mate, it's recoming long before, you don't have to actually play it out to the, to the bitter end. The Swiss National Bank was this bizarre case that um, by conventional theory should have been able to get away with it. And in 2013 and 2014, they said, we're going to hold the franc, not up, but down. Yeah. We won't hold it down to no more than um, 1.3 franc to the, uh, to the euro because the Swiss banks are getting crushed. You know, their, their liabilities are in, in uh, francs, which are going up, their assets are in euros, which are going down. And um, I'm sure the exporters were complaining bitterly as well. But it's really a banking solvency thing. So the Swiss National Bank says, we're going to hold the front down. We stand ready. All we have to do to hold it down is print. That's right. Right. We can print unlimited amounts. We're not a, a banana republic trying to prop it up. We're trying to hold it down. And then one fateful day in January 2015, um, the peg snapped violently. The Swiss National Bank lost something like 20% of annual GDP in a millisecond. Yeah. Because it turns out it's not printing, but borrowing, it's balance sheet expansion. It basically became this over-leveraged hedge fund, That's right. uh, you know, borrowing more and more in francs to buy 
um, you know, Euro denominated assets. And then when they were staring down the barrel of insolvency, they get to a point of saying this, you know, this is uh, untenable. We can't uh, you know, continue doing this. We're gonna jeopardize the bank. We're gonna jeopardize Switzerland itself. Who knows what would happen? And then um, even that was actually not unlimited. Although within a few weeks before that, the, the central bank governor, Thomas Jordan, was out there boasting and thumping his chest, you know, we have unlimited resources to do this. We will stare the market down. We will win. And, you know, a couple of weeks later, completely overrun. Well, it goes back to my point that the central banks are still balance sheets. And, and actually, right. um, Benjamin Anderson writing in, I think, the 40s, about the 30s, he made the point that when Roosevelt devalued the dollar from $20 an ounce to $35 an ounce, they did it in Europe by they, they had to uh, uh, sell dollars, right, to put, issue more dollars. And they bought gold. <laughs> and so and so he said it took a tremendous amount of selling of dollars to beat it down because if you swap it out for gold, you're not really changing the value. You're just that's a liquidity operation, not a solvency operation. Um, and what happened was you look at the backing of the of the Federal Reserve by the by the war by 1940, it was 80% backed by gold. They had to buy so much gold to to issue enough dollars to get the dollar lower that that uh, that that they wound up being again almost a pure gold instrument by the end of the Great Depression, as it was in 1980. And so again, it, it wasn't this 1980 phenomenon. This, this happens again and again where balance sheets matter, central banks are balance sheets. Yes, because they are back for the state, they can do certain things for a certain period of time. But in the end of the day, the markets triumph against politics and, uh, and the market will liquidate the Fed. And what, the way that will look like is again, the market forcing the balance sheet to balance. That's a very so, interesting way of expressing that. I, I was gonna say central banks with an emphasis on the word bank, right? There is some state privilege right. there, but at the end of the day, it's a bank, it's got a balance sheet, and uh, you know it can get out of whack, but eventually it's got to get balanced. That, that's right. Now, I mean, the, the lefties say, look, you know, you, you always raise taxes and, and, and short the bank that way, right? And, and there's some truth to that. I mean, theoretically, if, if the Federal Reserve is upside down and making losses, you could jack up taxes to, to short up again. But the limitations of that are twofold. One is we all know about the Laffer curve, right? There's a tax rate above which tax revenue goes negative. In other words, the, the, you, you take on less revenue than, than, than you did before. That's and right. the other thing, of course, is as in conjunction with that is the higher you tax, the worse your economy is going to be. And then again, the less production there'll be and the less money there is to shore up your percentage of banks. So th that's the theory in, in a static point of view, it's correct. But in, in, a, in, in a real world situation, it actually doesn't work because you simply can't raise enough taxes to, to hand it over. And by the way, how, how politically popular would it be for Congress to announce a special tax of one to hand it over to, to Jay Powell, I think there'd be, <laughs> there'd be yeah. some resistance to that, that idea. So well, also the, the, sh the sheer magnitude of the Fed's liabilities are, are so much greater than, I mean, does anybody think you could tax any meaningful proportion of $30 trillion? Well, that's right. That's it's, exactly it's so right. far beyond that, that, that and, and continues to grow exponentially. Yeah. Um, and, and, and as you point, has to go because the the social contract demands it. And so uh, again, people have you know for decades talked about how social security is going to bankrupt and Medicare is going to bankrupt, going to bankrupt. And, and that will happen. I it takes longer than you think. I think it was Adam Smith who said there's a lot of ruin in a nation. And, and I always go back to Gibbons <laughs> who said when he you know his, his monumental decline and fall of the Roman Empire, he starts it by saying the surprise wasn't that Rome fell, surprised it took so long to fall. It was such a disaster. Uh, and it kept going for, for so long. And I think we're we're here now. I remember when I had my first job in Paris in uh, in 1991, I worked at the Hell Tribune uh, with a political respondent. And he told me France couldn't couldn't last in the way they were structured. Well, it's still around. But you know, I think he's gonna be right in the day. I mean, I'm not sure France will make it in another six months, uh, given the energy situation, given the immigration situation, given the economic situation, um, and, and given the demographic situation. I mean, it, it really, you know, as, as the, these things do build, and as, as Keith alluded to earlier, not just monetary affairs, but also political affairs. Um, it, these things have more quanta dynamics. They're not they're not curves. They they they, they behave non-linearly, and uh, and the collapse of countries and collapse of currencies but behave that way. Um, and, and you see, one of the examples I always like is the Berlin Wall. You know, I mean, for decades, people trying to cross 
that wall were shot dead. And then one day they weren't. Uh, it wasn't a slow process. Just one day, boom, the wall came down. And, and, and that is more in the model of how, how the world changes. We're seeing it today in, in the Ukraine. And it just it happens in these very sudden moments. You know, as Lenin said, everyone knows what there are. There are uh, decades when nothing happens, and there are weeks when decades happen. And I think we're we're heading towards that kind of that that kind of event. So we're touching on a couple of my favorite themes: nonlinearity. It's not a matter of okay, divide this quantity by this quantity, and that tells you where you know things should be. And the other one being that it's a dynamic, not a static snapshot. And um, you you touched on it, but I just want to. Um, dwell on a little bit more the idea that, okay, suppose you were to try to tax the people um, to shore up the central bank's balance sheet. Well, you've got a political dynamic that there might be a great deal of outrage against that, probably from both parties. I don't know that Republicans would like that any more than Democrats. I'd have to think about that a little bit more. I don't think so. Uh, what the what the Republican spin machine might say to well, them. I mean, it's not not the MAGA Republicans, right? I mean, are you talking about Clinton Democrats and and Bush Republicans, or who are you talking about? <laughs> so well, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm sort of non non specific Republican. But then the other dynamic is, if you impose that tax, well, the second thing is you have uh, a point. I use the term the Laffer Maxima. I don't know if that term's been coined or not, or uh, I've used it. You know, that's like the maximum theoretical maximum tax rate above which you can increase the rate, but the tax take actually goes down. Now, I, I believe, and I've written about this, that the Laffer Maxima is not a static, but actually moves with the credit cycle. So if you're on the fun rising part of the credit cycle, you can get away with a higher Laffer Maxima. And then yeah. bust phase, you'd have to lower it to, to maximize you know, revenues. But uh, obviously, if you're raising taxes, even let's say you're raising it to that point, if the Laffer maxima is higher than whatever your tax rate currently is, which may or may not be the case, then you're reducing the economy, which means you're reducing economic output, which means you're reducing the ultimate capacity to pay that tax is being reduced. Thus, you're working counter to the purpose that you're trying to achieve. That's right. You have this dynamic that's going against you, and the longer you pursue it, the worse it gets. Yeah, and it's worse now, Keith, because again, you look back at, at credit cycles over history, and and of course, at the top of the credit cycle, governments are spending as fast as they can to build state houses and canals and finance things. And, and, and that, that's ubiquitous. So it's not just that they can't tax the people as much in the turndown, but they've got their own credit problems, their, their projects they can't finish and, and all, the, all the chaos of that, that entails. So they, they can't even pay their creditors. So, and, and what this goes back to is, is I, I think history is pretty clear on this, that all these imbalances in, in the economy and in politics and in society, the, the faster they get resolved, better. So in the 19th century, when you didn't have a central bank and the credit collapse would come, you know, everyone got wiped out. The labor got fired. The, the, the capitalists went bankrupt. <laughs> the, the baggage, everyone was at zero, but the assets were still there. And after, uh, you know, four, six, eight month uh, 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 sobriety period, uh, people pick up and, you know, and start over and, and keep going. And people who had been as reckless would, would foreclose on the assets the reckless people had, had constructed. And they'd hire people again and off you'd go. And, and the whole problem of the, of the 20th century, now the 21st century, is that the government didn't let that process happen. Um, they, they bailed yes. out labor. They bailed out capital. They bailed out everybody. And, and so there was no cleansing of the system. There was no getting rid of those assets or, or repurposing them for better, for better use. And so, mm -hmm. the, the, and, and yeah, this this was the story in the in the twenties, and and uh, it's certainly the story that we're living through now. That's right. When they when they socialize it and just bring it on board, it's like I, I wrote an article uh, for Forbes. I forget the title, but it's like putting a penny in the fuse box. Is you know suppose you're, you know, you're trying to cook dinner, and your teenage daughter is using the hair dryer, and dad's using a power tool in the garage, and then the, the fuse burns. So you go down to the basement, you replace the fuse, and, you know, and, but of course all the load is still there. So it burns again. And now you're out of, you know, more fuses, the hardware store is closed, it's Friday evening. You put a penny in the fuse box and then that happens on another circuit. You put, you know, you're starting to put pennies in there. Yeah. And it lets you keep things going or at least keep the pretense that everything's fine. But the ultimate then uh, uh, failure mode isn't to burn out a fuse. Now it's to burn the house down. 
Well, well, that's right. And that's why exactly why Hayek wrote correctly that was the Great Depression was so much bigger than any depression had been in the 19th century because the, the Fed kept the show going for, for, for a decade and basically and hadn't done in the 19th century because there was no Fed to, to do that. Uh, and, and so um, it was the state, he called them the stabilizers, the people trying to stabilize the markets who intervened to make sure the overcapacity never liquidated created that problem. And again, we had that problem just just not monetarily, just monetarily, but economically, just at a, at a much, much, much larger scale than they had in, in the 20s. So our, our depression, when it comes, will be much, much worse. And what scares me more than that, though, is that another theme of credit bubbles is if you look at the end of them, you often see a war. And, and there's good reason for this. And that is when the government is trying to control the economy um, and spend money, uh, you have, usually have the left-wing groups that want to spend lots of money, the right-wing groups that don't. And you have this conflict there. But the, the one thing that right-wing groups always will spend money on is defense. And so uh, you get these, these deals where the right-wing gets their defense budgets, the left-wing gets their social budgets, and everyone's happy, which is, again, defines basically the U.S. politics for the last 50 or 60 years. And, and so you construct these enormous armies that become economically important. I, I think it was John T. Flynn who quipped that if you would ask an Italian statesman to demobilize the army, pre-World War One, he, he, he couldn't have done it because it was the largest industry in Italy. Uh, so, so they were reliant on this for a source of jobs and, and all these things. And so once you have these armies, of course, the, there's a short step from having them to, to using them and creating, creating the conditions with which you have to convince a populace you need them, which is why we had no peace dividend. I mean, you remember back in the 80s when the, when the uh, Soviet Union collapsed in the early 90s, the whole idea is if there's peace dividend, we wouldn't have spent all this money on military arms control. We spent more money on the military on inflation inflation adjusted basis since the Soviet Union fell than before because we've created monsters all over the world to, to, to go to go chase. And again, this is wonderfully economically stimulative when you pass these laws and you, and you have these huge defense budgets, but it is very, uh, it, it, um, it undermines the social fabric. It was Bassiat who said back in the 1850s that if, if, uh, if economies were held by military spending, why not call all men to the, to the, to the colors, is how he phrased it. So this is not a new idea, um, but, but we're seeing it play out again. Again, nobody talks about these things because econo this is economics, and economics today is a science. And what I just described can't be expressed by a formula. It's a story. It's a story that repeats over and over and over and over and over. Uh, the same thing happened in ancient Greece. Uh, um, but uh, but the economists don't talk about it, and these historians don't talk about it because it's not interesting historically in terms of their narrative. Just history is now about narratives and groups and oppression and all the rest of it. So nobody in academia or anywhere else uh, looks at these old old books and these old ideas and analyzes them. And that, that that's what I'm tr trying to do with my own work is to is to revive this body of knowledge that's out there for anyone who wants to look for it, but is not publicized. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a very worthy goal, and uh, um, I, hope, I hope your book is successful. The one, um, and, and I think we are kind of out of time, but the one fine point that I want to add to it, when you talk about the social dimension of all this, is when we get to this mother of all busts, which is going to be bigger than any other, in part because, boy, we've kept it going for so long, in part because I think this is the only time in world history where the entire world has gone all in on the same scheme. Yeah. Previously, if, if Germany, uh, you know, their, their scheme collapsed in 1923, well, there were a lot of other countries around that had capital that hadn't been so, you know, insane. Uh, but now the whole world's all in on it, which means that the misery that is going to come with this bust will be, you know, commensurately the greater. Um, it's that misery that that provides the greatest impetus for war. You know, people that are hungry and desperate and angry uh, are much more apt to say, "Yeah, let's go march off to war." It's, 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 it's our stupid neighbor that you know. If we go punish them, they're the ones who are responsible for all this. Plus, look at all that loot over there that we can get to make our own plate less Putin's bad. <laughs> the what? Putin's price hike. It's all Putin's fault. Right. Exactly. Let's go over there and, and have war and. Um, yeah. We can we can get revenge and we can take all that loot that'll, that'll make things well again. That's right. Um, and uh, that could be the uh, the capstone to the whole thing is that sort of war. Um, anyways, this is all getting pretty bleak. Um, <laughs> I think if there's a if there's a positive takeaway that I'd like to 
in part to the end of this conversation, it's that, you know, it's by, it's ultimately by, by appealing to people and appealing to reason and saying, think about this. This is the direction that we're going in and just step outside of whatever interest group you may perceive yourself to be in at the moment. Look at this from a social dynamic perspective and a monetary uh, dynamic perspective. If enough people say, you know, it's time to change this, then things can be changed. If everyone just says it's hopeless, we're just gonna watch it go over, then, uh, then going over is gonna be really bad. Well, if I can add to that, Keith, that, that, that's exactly why I like to look for stories at other times and other places, because when I talk about John Law in 19, uh, in 1710, nobody has a dog in that fight. If you talk about today's policies, everyone has their ideas surrounding today's issues. But if you talk about something that happened in Greece or Rome, France, 300 years ago, no one has any preconceived ideas. So they can actually look at the, the lessons that, that they learned back then and then hopefully realize, wait a minute, I can apply these to, to my current circumstance. Um, and and I, think, I think it's a worthy goal to try to help people to do that who don't know how to do it themselves. Um, and, and all I would say is that I, I, I think, I mean, most of the time when you read history, countries don't really end. I mean, 1923 was a bad time for Germany, but Germany's still here. I mean, it, it, it recovered and, and had some rocky times, but, but you can get through these things. Civilization doesn't usually end. Now I said to someone at lunch yesterday, and he said, what about 1917? And I had to admit, well, <laughs> that was maybe, maybe not the great, uh, maybe it's a good counterexample, but I, I don't think, at least I hope, that at least in the US, um, there's still enough people here who would resist what I would call full Bolshevism, that I, I think we, we, we can avoid the, 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 the 1917 scenario. I mean, we might get the 1973 scenario, but not the 1917 scenario. And, and that may not be true for, for countries. I mean, I, without knowing much about it, I would have told you three or four years ago that the place to go in a big crisis might be Canada or, or, or New Zealand or Australia. You know, I, Crocodile Dundee and all that stuff. I had no idea that they had turned into prison planets, all those, those three countries. Uh, and, and that, you know, I certainly learned that over the last couple of years. So I don't, I don't know where it is that, that, that one goes. Even Switzerland, unfortunately, is being sucked into the, into the EU and losing some of its independence. Um, and uh, uh, I've heard Europe, perhaps, is, is a place to go. But not that I want to go somewhere. But my point is, that in the US, I, I think we're not going to do the whole the full Bolshevism thing. And that, that's a that's a hopeful thought because it means that we can get through a credit collapse, a, a social government collapse and, and come out the other side more or less unscathed. And that money will, will be moved around and people who are rich now won't be rich then and, and lots will change. Um, but that's happened before. I, I remember a friend of mine in France telling me darkly that if you can't trace your noble lineage in France past through the revolution, it means you, you probably bought it in the revolution. Right? There was last count, whatever his name was, was beheaded and someone else bought his title and that's the current count, so-and-so. So that that kind of thing definitely happens individually. It's a very uh, uh, difficult uh, time to that's survive. Right. But as a country, hopefully we can we can get through and survive. That's right. That's a good uh, distinction. All right, well, on that note. I yeah, Dan, or go ahead, Keith. I, I so appreciate you coming on. This has been a fascinating conversation that I think our listeners will find very interesting. Um, and uh, do let us know when your when your book is out. And we I'm will... going to send you a advanced copy, Keith. And next time, I want to talk about the uh, real bills doctrine, which I know you're very familiar with. And I want to bring that into the conversation as well. It's oh, absolutely. I, I need I, your I help to do that because it's a tricky topic. But we'll see okay. next time. Okay. Do you do you have a date? Do you have a date? Uh, no, I you know I. It, you know, I'll just quickly, I had almost had it done. I was ready to hit the button and, and send it out. And then and then I had a third kid, COVID hit, we moved to the country, my business went crazy. And, and then what happened was that so much has happened in the past two years. You can't write a book about the history of credit bubbles and, without and, including and government and solid decay yeah. and the Federal Reserve and not include the last three years. And, and not just that, but all the themes that, that I think about and talk about you know, monetarism, printing money to save the economy, Keynesianism, which is uh, 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 direct physical stimulus, authoritarianism, where they come in and they tell you what to do, price controls, things like that, where you no longer have sovereignty over your own money, right? War, right? These are the four elements you see as you're going down the other side of the bubble. Uh, and, and we have all four of those now 
converging uh, into the singularity that, that we're reaching towards. And that's so important to, to get that right, that it's difficult to tie those four trends together, you know, convincingly with the right stories and the right data and all that kind of thing, which is why it's taking so long. But, but, uh, but, but you know, we're, we're, that's where we're headed and, and uh, hopefully we'll all be able to get it out in the, in the near future. Very good. Well, I certainly echo Keith's remarks. It was great to have you. We'll definitely look to have you back on in the future. And hopefully at that time, we'll, you know, we'll have an advanced copy in hand. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks Thank so much. You, this episode was brought to you by Monetary Metals. Monetary Metals is a different kind of gold company. Others buy and sell gold. Monetary Metals operates the Gold Yield Marketplace, a platform of products that offer a yield on gold paid in gold to investors and institutions, and are gold financing simplified, reliable financing denominated in gold with a built-in hedge for gold-using and gold-producing businesses. To learn more, visit www.monetary-metals.com. See you next time.